Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast, Dan. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Well, thanks so much. I appreciate uh, the opportunity, Robbie. I'm a professor of associate, I'm sorry, a clinical professor of management at uh, LeBeau College of Business. I teach strategy. I teach entrepreneurship. I teach uh, technology innovation management. And when I go abroad, I teach business communication and international business. Uh, my pedigree is from university the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Duke University with my PhD. I have a master's in international business from Temple University. I've studied at the, the Institut Question de Social in Paris and in Moscow State University and, and of course, Moscow. And um, I uh, am a former military intelligence officer serving during the Cold War. And this kind of uh, leavens my perspective on a, on a lot of issues, having uh, dealt with uh, what at the time was a notional enemy, um, the Soviet Union and its um, uh, a, a professed uh, this professed uh, Marxism slash Leninism, and um, that was my PhD topic in political science, which was studying the Soviet economy, studying the Soviet political system, and uh, the security implications of that. So that, in a nutshell, is what I do and where I come from. Can I ask what your thoughts are on Marxism and even communism? I've talked to people that would, like I said, most of my guests would probably leftist compared to, but some would identify as Marxist or things of that sort, but they've kind of only told me the good about it, like liberating and all this type of things. And I, I try and get the balanced perspective. The only way you can get that is by talking to both sides of things. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on Marxism. Well, it all depends on what you what you mean when you say Marxism, because if you talk to uh, socialists or Marxists today, though, the, the, the knee-jerk response is, you know, when you refer to the legacy, the nasty, bloody legacy of Marxism slash socialism over the last hundred and, and say, 20 years, um, they all will all come back, well, well, that's never really been tried. That's not Marxism. That's not socialism. Uh, here's what we want. And then they'll provide a kind of a utopian vision of uh, a world of plenty. Uh, where the means of production are owned by uh, the workers, and uh, there is a, a plenty for all. And that's, in a nutshell, the kind of uh, utopian vision that they offer. Well, of course, this is completely false, because uh, the legacy of Marxism is clear to anyone who has studied history. And the idea that somehow today's Marxists or socialists have a superior vision to those uh, who came along like Karl Kautsky after Marx, George, uh, George Plekhanov, Lenin, Stalin, Mao Zedong, um, on into the, the legacy of what Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, uh, and the, the regime we have today in North Korea, that these folks, they somehow didn't really understand Marx. And, you know, after all, Karl Kautsky and George Plekhanov are major Marxist theorists um, who um, implemented Marx as they understood it. Uh, and uh, the idea that they somehow did it wrong and that today's Marxists are more enlightened is absurd. Uh, they're no, these characters are no more are no smarter than the uh, Marxists that we've seen in the past. And these were very bright people. Let's make no mistake that Lenin was a, was a, was a razor-sharp uh, character. Mao Zedong uh, was a uh, razor-sharp guy. I mean, his modification of Marxism led to what was called in the late 60s, uh, the three M's, which was Herbert Marcuse, uh, Marx, and Mao. And anyone who was a, uh, a Marxist in that day, meaning the late 60s on into the early 70s, uh, was a Maoist. I mean, if you were a Marxist, then you were de facto a Maoist. Even Michel Foucault, uh, the French um, 
a philosopher who's contributed so much to postmodernism and that sort of thing. Uh, even he was a Marxist. Most people don't realize that. From 1970 to 1974, he was an avowed Marxist and was working with the political activist wing of uh, Marxist uh, aficionados in, in France. Herbert Marcuse, of course, uh, in 1968, he was the like the patron saint of the student resistance movement, one of the three M's. Uh, and in his book in 1972, it's Counter-Revolution and Revolution, he made popular this notion of the long march through the institutions, taking the metaphor of Mao Zedong's long march uh, to the uh, Yunnan province to escape the nationalist Chinese in the late 19, I'm sorry, in the, in the, in the uh, 1930s, um, applying that to the institutions of the capitalist West. The idea that uh, there would be an undermining of these institutions and infiltration of these institutions to transform these institutions into agents and uh, uh, actors in the Marxist revolution to achieve these utopian goals that uh, the world of plenty, the horn of plenty. Uh, and as long as Marxists and socialists uh, allow the conversation to be dominated and channeled along what they actually want to see in the world, you know, imagine world peace would be a John Lennon-esque way of phrasing it or, or a capturing that, as long as they are allowed to not discuss the legacy of Marxism and allowed to kind of say, well, you know, that really wasn't, that really wasn't what we want. Um, what we want is some, is some um, uh, formation or some uh, structure, societal structure that follows along from people like Georgi Lukash uh, in the, from the 1920s, um, Antonio Gramsci uh, in at the Italian Communist Party in the 1920s and 30s from his prison notebooks on into the idea of the neo-Marxist Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, uh, which was Adorno and Horkheimer, uh, which were German philosophers, Jewish philosophers, who fled to the United States uh, under the threat of the Nazis and continued their Marxist influence in the United States and who created this notion of critical theory. If you're ever wondering where that came from. Uh, it came from the neo-Marxist Frankfurt School, and the genesis of critical theory is that we, being the Frankfurt School theorists, we can't say Marxism. We have to utilize some sort of vernacular to get around the politically uh, unsavory connotation of Marxism. So we will now uh, adopt a vernacular that kind of masks what it is we're doing critical theory. And the, an entire vernacular sprang out of this transgressing the boundaries, interrogating uh, the uh, the uh, institutions of oppression, that sort of thing. And it's very intoxicating for graduate students today who are initiated into this kind of uh, almost like a priesthood of critical theory it, because it, this um, the oddness of the vernacular, um, because the average person doesn't use it and certainly the average scholar doesn't use it in the sciences, the real sciences. Um, and many in the social sciences don't really, we understand it, but we don't use it because it's, it's sort of contrived. Um, but it's intoxicating to graduate students who feel like they're being ushered into the world of hidden knowledge, uh, uh, the, to, the, to the, uh, the province of those who know. Uh, and this is why you have so many young graduate students um, adopting critical theory, adopting this neo-Marxist perspective. Um, and the idea is that we're going to modify, if not tear down, the institutions of capitalism, which, according to Marxist Alt, uh, Louis Althusser, reproduce uh, the conditions of Marx of, of, of capitalism on the college campuses, especially that they, being the Marxists, according to Louis Althusser, 
have to undermine and and, and destroy this instrument or this um, uh, bureaucracy that reproduces capitalism in our society to somehow undermine that. And this is all part of the fruition of uh, Herbert Marcuse's um, notion of the long march through the institutions. By the way, he's given false credit. He's never taken credit for it, but he's given false credit for that phrase, long march through the institutions. That was a German activist by the name of Rudy Dutschke, um, who was uh, killed, unfortunately. He was a, a very popular, very well-known actor in activist in the 1960s. He coined that phrase, the long march through the institutions. And I think the metaphor the long march drawing from uh, Maoism is not an accident, of course. It's it's code, very open code to those who want to join that, that long march. We have people on my campus right now who have joined that long march just yesterday, in fact. And I'll send you a photograph I took of them. I was walking along a walkway, famous walkway on our campus. And lo and behold, there's a table set there with a couple of students, three of them, in fact, wearing red t-shirts uh, and giving out literature, passing out literature with all the slogans that you might imagine. And I actually stopped to take a picture of it for you, Robbie. <laughs> and uh, I, they, while I'm taking the picture, one of them turned to me and very brightly said, are you a communist? I said, well, no, I, no I'm not. And uh, she said, well, do you want to be a communist? And I said, I, I think not. Wait, that's but, still on uh, your campus right now? There's people trying to be communists on your campus? Well, I will. I'll send you the photograph because I knew that no one would believe me if I just said. That's crazy to me. I'm sorry. I I, I believe you 100 percent. I just think it's like I don't I didn't know that. I, that. I feel like you're going to a university to get an education, not try and get, you know, your political well, views. Or... Who knows who these people are? They had the literature laid out there. If you blow up the picture, you, you can see the literature that they're distributing. Uh, it's been debunked. You know, Marxism has been debunked so many times. The problem on the one of the problems, I should say on the college campuses that in histories, uh, in the history department, uh, the complete history and in political science, usually sometimes the complete um, uh, breadth of literature on these particular issues have, have not, are not offered. In fact, I've done a study of the uh, of a course called History of Capitalism. I have the syllabus and I've looked at the readings. Um, I passed this syllabus before I tell you what was on it. I passed the syllabus to a colleague. He came back about 20 minutes later said, and his words to me were, this is malfeasance. This is malfeasance. This is not a history of capitalism. And there was no original uh, uh, works were prescribed for students to read. There was no uh, Karl Marx on there. There was no Adam Smith on there. There was no Milton Friedman, Friedrich von Hayek. There, were, there was nothing on there of the primary sources. There was a single book um, by, uh, I believe his name is Jürgen Koltko. Part of, of a leader in the idea of the new the new history, a very short book. I I ordered the book. I've I've read the book, and then a bunch of other articles that really had nothing to do with capitalism, kind of peripheral to it, but nothing by the major, uh, the major you know, articulators of uh, you know uh, of capitalism. None of the major founders of capitalism. Nothing from the Gilded Age. Nothing from the idea. Nothing from Ayn Rand. Nothing certainly nothing from Ayn Rand, uh, but nothing from the great names of uh, that are associated with, with capitalism. Um, and this, if you're not receiving the literature, the opportunity to read the literature in a course on the history of capitalism, you're going to come out of that particular course with a kind of a a, a strange view, as certainly a a view that is stunted and cramped and and ideologically informed. Uh, and this is something that is a problem, I think. Uh, not and that's just kind of a snapshot anecdote, as well as my seeing these communists on the campus yesterday. And I will send you that photograph. It's very interesting. They're, they're pleasant young people, but I think uh, misguided. And um, it's uh, something that is um, 
It's because uh, capitalism gets attached to the establishment, and there's a lot of people that are teaching or kind of showing the ones – like I've talked to many people about the underground press, the many student activists, the Students for Democratic Society that turned into the Weather Underground. That's kind of when it goes bad and things of that sort, but – when you're just learning that history and kind of like hearing it from people that either experienced it and they're just talking about what we were trying to do was we're trying to stop the establishment or stop this because they do this or do that. It makes you hate the establishment. I'm not a big fan of capitalism, but also I've learned about the Great Depression. And that was the thing that seemed like, well, are we going to turn to communism or are we going to go with capitalism? And it worked. And I feel like this is probably the best system that we're in right now. I just don't know. I, I think a lot of kids are getting taught probably once. I'm getting taught one-sided information at times as well, too. But you attack the morals of things. I don't think people want to see other people get hurt or things of that sort. So that's why you have a bunch of kids that are usually charged up on college campuses kind of sp- I don't know. Have you ever seen Steven Crowder's videos? I don't know if you know who that is, but he's on college. Louder with Crowder? Is that the name of the... He's on college campuses, like, debating people, but he's saying, sit down and let's have a conversation. Nobody's having a conversation with him about it, though. He's a demon in their eyes, and that's that's what I don't agree with. I agree with sitting down and being able to rationally discuss things, but I feel like some people aren't as informed as maybe he has it or someone else. Well, I I tell you, a lot of people who want to... um... Uh, and I can't speak for the people you've spoken to who advocate this Marx. I've known Marxists myself. There was a, a Marxist over at Temple University where he used to teach. He was running the book program over there. And uh, uh, he uh, later uh, disconnected from me on the various social platforms because he didn't like what I was saying, which was and I never I tried never to speak in a less than factual manner uh, about these about these issues. And what I think uh, that we find with uh, Marxists is that they themselves never really want to experience uh, the um, Marxist world that they are advocating. They envision themselves, we're going to have a planned society where everyone is you know, treated in a certain way, and that um, uh, we, we're receiving, uh, you know, I think if Marx's dictum was that, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. He said this, I think, in the seventh, I think in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon, um, and, and this is kind of seized upon. This is really the first definition of equity. Um, the idea that we're going to receive uh, different rewards based on our ability to contribute to this larger society. Well, of course, this direct society requires some kind of planner, requires someone to kind of articulate, requires someone to be above the hoi polloi of, say, Robbie and myself. And they never really, they being the folks that you have dealt with and I'm dealing with, never picture themselves as one of the uh, the masses. They picture themselves as in the vanguard of the bureaucracy, who is telling other people, you know, allocating resources according to this formula or this calculus, rather than allowing the market to dictate the allocation of resources. The market has gotten really a bad rap. And when we say capitalism, I'm referring to free market uh, enterprise, free enterprise system. Um, when we talk about the market, a lot of folks who are and who uh, are uh, have a lot of antipathy for the for capitalism speak of the market in negative terms, and and they speak of it as almost like as a living, breathing entity, uh, which it is not. Of course, it's nothing but the aggregation. If we talk about the United States, just for instance, the aggregation of millions of people and their decisions on a daily basis of how they want to spend their wealth. And it's that you, you can apply it to the price of gasoline, you can apply it, apply it to the price of bread, to milk, to, to canned goods, you know, to, to soda pop, uh, to, to beer. The market dictates the, the prices. One of the beauties of economics, one of the few things, the economic laws that we can appreciate is the law of supply and demand. Uh, and this, when, uh, whenever a um, uh, more people want 
a, a supply of goods that is insufficient, we can expect the price of those goods to rise. And that's usually where the end of the story is. Well, you know, only the rich can have such and such. Well, no, the idea is that if the price rises, that attracts more producers into that industry to produce more of that good, and then the price starts to come down again. The problem comes with uh, government interference, which is usually you know, party related um, and, and somehow sometimes ideologically related. We want to suppress the demand on gasoline. So we artificially raise the price uh, to a certain level by taxing it. And then we bury the tax or hide the tax um, so that most people don't understand that a lot of the price of gasoline today is, is gas tax. Um, and you, you know, people can look it up uh, as we say, but what happens whenever you artificially you artificially control the price because you have an aspiration to have a, a utopian world. And you look at the, the price of bread in the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union was was uh, capped at uh, 35 kopecks for, for decades, okay? Because this was one of the, the pillars of Soviet ideology, Marxist ideology, that we're going to uh, cap the price so it's affordable. That would be the lingo we hear today, right? So so there's, <laughs> I'm going to use this lingo. I don't really use it myself during the, here today, but uh, you know, we want everyone to have access to bread. You've heard that access, right? Access to affordable health care. We want everyone to have access to affordable bread. That would be how you know the, the Stalinist um, uh, Stalinist dictatorship would have would have uh, phrased it: access to affordable bread. So we're going to cap it at thirty-five kopecks, which is an insignificant sum, as far as. Uh, you know, irrespective of inflation, irrespective of the worth of the ruble abroad, which is zero, 35 kopecks. Well, the problem with that, one of the big problems with that is that instead of rationing by price and allowing the price of bread to fluctuate according to the demands of people who may want to buy two, two loaves or 10 loaves or just one loaf every two weeks, the problem is there's no communication between the masses of people who want bread and the people who set this arbitrary price. And therefore, this leads to a rationing of the bread by time, not money by time. And so, OK, the bread costs 35 kopecks, but there's only so much bread to go around. I better get in line early. And I should tell you, I've stood in a, a Soviet bread line when I visited the Soviet Union in 1988 when there were still lines. And I stood in a bread line just against that occasion. 40 years hence when I would when I would be asked, uh, have, you know, what do you know about bread lines in the Soviet Union? So, well, I stood in one. OK, I stood in one because that's how you ration goods. That's why we have gasoline lines when we cap the price of gasoline. Uh, there's not enough gasoline to go around at the capped price. And so people sit in line so that they can get what's gas, what gas is available. And you're so you're not paying with your money. You're paying with your time and the people who have more time to spare. Uh, you know, get the bread. Is that fair? Well, that sounds it sounds a lot fairer than oh, only the rich shall eat bread. Well, it, it all depends on how you want to ration the bread. You cannot escape the demands and the diktat of supply and demand. Um, and also, the bread's quality was uh, to, to add you know insult to this unavailability of bread. A lot of sawdust in that bread uh, because the people producing the bread were not reliant upon customer satisfaction. There was no wonder bread in the Soviet Union. There was just bread. Kleb is the Russian word for it. And there was a, a bread store. And the sign at, atop the bread store said Kleb, which is where you stand in line for your bread. And then there's a line where you says this vino, uh, wine. That's a wine sign. Vino wine. Or apteka, which is the pharmacy. Or um, apotek, which is the uh, the uh, 
optometry shop. Uh, and, and so this is the reality of a Marxist-driven, Marxist-informed system, the economic results of that kind of system. Once you begin to apply it and you get away from the abstractions that those uh, smiling Marxists on the campuses who've never had to live under a Marxist system um, talk about. If you really want to know what it's like to live under a Marxist system, talk, you know, you can't talk to them now, but you can investigate the works of emigres and de defectors like, like Joseph Brodsky from the Soviet Union, Václav Havel from the Czech Republic, who appears in my book uh, as part of the thematic content of, uh, the, of Brutal Minds. So that, in a nutshell, to answer your question uh, from about 10 minutes ago, uh, is my view of Marxism and its role in today's society. How was that introduced over here? Like, how, how do we have it where it's infecting or brain? I wouldn't say brain. I mean, brainwashing might be a good term for it. But when it comes to higher education, obviously, it's being taught somewhere in there and people are coming out with views of it. Mostly kids my generation in their 20s or something, they're coming out with it. So is that coming from... Teachers, where are they getting those philosophies at? I mean, when do you think this all kind of started impeding onto, I guess, the everyday social systems that we had set in place before this started? Well, what we have uh, is is there's always been a Marxist presence in uh, the the academy because it's an attractive system. Marx was a great uh, a great scholar. I, I I have no nothing but respect for Marx in terms of his his scholarly abstract ideas. I mean, he was an immense intellect. Um, he said great things about uh, uh, about class consciousness, meaning that uh, he, he basically introduced the notion of uh, studying class stratifications of societies. Uh, to, now, of course, he, he wove from that his theory of from historical materialism, the idea that he has unlocked the keys to history. We can predict what's going to happen. That's as deterministic. That's what's called vulgar Marxism, this kind of vulgar um, basic economic determinism. No, he he contributed a lot in philosophy, in in uh, economics, uh, in um, political political the political realm. He was a political activist, um, and you know everyone needs really to read. If you can't read a lot of Marx, you need to read his Communist Manifesto, uh, which basically says great things about capitalism uh, as it exists. And he's looking forward, of course, to the new phase of socialism and then on to communism. Uh, if you have uh, the 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 will to do it. You can also read The Capital or Das Kapital in, in, in the German um, and uh, understand you know, why and how this, this uh, doctrine has seized on the uh, the imaginations of a lot of academics. I mean, he's not, he wasn't the first socialist. Of course, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of socialists that came before. They were utopian socialists like Charles uh, Owen, I believe, no, Robert Owen in this, in this, uh, in this um, country, creating a utopian society. Um, and uh, you know, Proudhon was another uh, another socialist. And Marx rejected uh, a lot of the socialistic, uh, I should say the socialists that came before him um, and embraced scientific socialism. The idea that he, of course, turned Hegel on its head and identified this process that was unfolding in history. Now, how, wouldn't that be intoxicating for someone to, to believe that that uh, Wow, this guy has un unlocked the secrets of history and how history is going to unfold. You know, we have the uh, the basically the dialectic of the synthesis and the antithesis. Uh, these two uh, collide, and then to create a new to create a new thesis, and then the thesis leads to a new uh, a new antithesis, and then these two collide, and this is how uh, society or history progresses. Um, and of course, we can put details 
uh, de details into this um, this progression of history. This is the whole Marxian idea, and it's it's intoxicating for for academics and people who live with the life of the mind, love ideas and that kind of thing. And you have a lot. I mean, it's an awful lot of literature. The interpreting Marx that came out of Marx, Karl Kowski, of course, was his immediate successor, and then of course those uh, the theorists who informed the uh, the Soviet Union, the Bolsheviks, um, and uh, Georgi Lukash from Hungary, and then of course uh, Antonio Gramsci, who co contributed from his prison notebooks the notion of hegemony, which has been seized upon by Marxists today, um, and and so this has a and I would tell you that this. What intoxicates about Marx and the neo-Marxists today on the college campuses, and yes, there is brainwashing going on on the college campuses, which we can get to in a moment, um, but the idea that you have somehow unlocked the reality that is denied to other people who dwell in the world of what is called false consciousness. This false consciousness, and for Marx, class consciousness, was kind of a dichotomy of people who were dwelling in the in the in Plato's cave uh, from uh, uh, his classic work, The Republic. There are people dwelling in Plato's cave, can only see the shadows on the wall. They believe that this is their reality. At some point, someone is going to escape from the, the cave and come out into the bright sunshine of reality and understand that we have been living a lie. And when this person goes back into the cave, if he so chooses to do it, um, the people in the cave don't want to hear this, and they will probably they'll probably kill him. This is all out of Plato's uh, dialogue with Glaucon and Socrates. This is how Marxists believe themselves, perceive themselves. This is how Marxists, neo-Marxists, critical theorists today perceive themselves. They perceive themselves as having come out of Plato's cave, having emerged, emerged from this false consciousness that plagues everyone else. And have emerged, and their the scales have fallen from their eyes, and they now have what they call critical consciousness. You know that it's very similar to Marx's class consciousness. Well, this has been tweaked a little bit for today's sensibilities, and to encompass the notion that we're dealing now more with class, uh, more than class, we're dealing with gender and 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 sexuality and um, race and these kinds of these kinds of things. Well, people who achieve critical consciousness, and this is what they this is how they refer to themselves. They can peer into society. They can see society's contradictions. They can peer into the inequities and inequalities, the oppressors and the, oppre uh, the oppressed, exploiters and exploited, good and evil, you know, white and black. This is how they describe this process, and which is why dialogue, as we understand it, is so very um, uh, elusive, because you cannot talk to these people uh, because they are embracing a completely different perspective on the world, a different Weltanschauung, a different paradigm of how the world and how the university ought to operate. And they have dedicated themselves to the undermining of the university as we have traditionally conceived of it. And when I say traditionally, I'm talking about with the uh, the advent of the modern university uh, over the last 300 years, with the in, the uh, launching of the scientific revolution in the 1600s, well, it's called beginning with, say, the trial of Galileo in 1633, up to the end of the Enlightenment, 1789 in the French Revolution. These yeasty ideas and this experimentation led to the expunging or the attempted expunging from the university of magic thinking, uh, non-scientific knowledge such as Oh, the philosopher's stone, the idea you can turn lead into gold, uh, these unempirical notions that had uh, 
badly informed uh, scholars over the over the centuries. The, the Ptolemaic idea of the Earth-centered universe was expunged in favor of the Copernican Keplerian model of the sun-centered universe. Now that's not that's not correct either, the sun-centered universe, but it was based on observation. It was based on you know, scientific experimentation, which greatly improved over time. And the expunging of magical thinking and sorcery and uh, and, and all of this. Uh, now, this is what the modern, what I call them the modern medievalists, uh, want to see return to the university. Because the modern university, what I refer to it, and I'm sure as you conceive of it, is that this is a this is a repository of knowledge, the best that has been thought and said, which is a phrase that Matthew Arnold used in the latter part of the 1800s. And what we want to do is provide a forum for this contentious marketplace of ideas where ideas are introduced, they are debated with sharp questioning. And if they are found wanting, well, then they are expunged and we can move on to more significant questions that take their place. That is the that's the Max Weberian view of the university. Uh, Max Weber, in the early part of the 20th century, um, gave us this notion of the value-neutral classroom. The idea that the professor should not utilize his authority at the pulpit to impose his personal proclivities and political leanings on his class. Um, can anyone be perfectly objective? No, you can't be. But what you can do is you can strive for objectivity and the admission of a discussion that may uh, include uh, you know, contentious ideas and that we can work through this. Um, that notion of value neutrality has been discarded by the critical theorists as unachievable. And because you cannot achieve a perfect objectivity, we'll throw out the idea of objectivity and then acknowledge one's political position, this is their terminology, one's political position, and then teach with bias because you've acknowledged your bias and therefore I'm gonna teach with this with this bias. And that, their view, this view of the university is of as a crucible of indoctrination um, and training students to become uh, warriors in the class struggles of the future. That's not my phrase. That's the phrase of a, a Marxist by the name of Frederick Jameson, very important Marxist theorist, who, when I was at Duke University as a young graduate student, he said this quite publicly. He said that the purpose of the university is to train students for the struggles of the future, meaning the Marxist struggles of the future. He was speaking as a committed Marxist and a Marxist theorist. Um, and that's their view, in a nutshell, of the uh, of the critical theorist. Um, uh, and, and this is the dominant, this is why what we're talking right now, and this is why I wrote Brutal Minds. Well, it's parents' concerns as well, too, that they actually have to talk to their kid when they get home after a class and pray that the teacher might have tried to, you know, notice something about their political views that might have picked up from their parents and then try and insert their own political views in there. I've had many friends that don't agree with their friend or their, their parents politically anymore just because they went to college and then had this different perspective in a shift like that, which makes it... I don't know. It's it's difficult. But do you think that's just from academics or teachers that are instructing their students that way? Or do you think this is something else as well, too? I mean, I would say foreign influences as well, too. I mean, we know that the CIA and everything's on college campuses. We, who's to say that China or some other countries not on our college campuses are putting out disinformation or propaganda to make us hate our own country as well, too? Well, I can't really speak with personal experience to this, and I try to make my my own commentary as fact-filled as I possibly can. It's, it's either my own experience or it's something that has been researched thoroughly, and I, you know, and and I utilize their own words, they being the folks that I've been researching those points of view. Um, 
You had a multi-part question there, and I'll answer the first part first. Is it teachers that are doing this? Well, as I stayed in Brutal Minds, it's really, uh, there are a lot of gadfly faculty on, you know, on the college campus, unusual personalities. I mean, that's what the university is all about. Unusual personalities, smart people, uh, ideologues. There are a lot of communists, on, communist professors on the campuses who are, uh, when I say a lot, I mean, relatively speaking, because certainly more on the college campuses that you would find walking the streets of, of Philadelphia or Houston, te Texas, that kind of thing. Um, and they are quite vocal about what they, they do um, and they have tenure. And I don't know of anyone who's calling for their dismissal because they are this way they don't lie about it and usually some of them are quite smart like i said i've known about i've known a number of marxists um before who are quite civil and and i found that a lot of them simply will not engage in the realities uh that and historical precedents that are presented to them because they exist in this bubble where they talk with other marxists who say well that's 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 exactly right and there was well of course you're right as well and they kind of it's kind of a circle of uh of an echo chamber yeah, yeah, a circle of confirmation where they, you know, they're they're drinking each other's bathwater, that kind of thing, reading each other's press releases. And but the faculty really are not the problem if you're looking for a, a villain on the campus, right? The faculty, in fact, are invested, the majority of faculty, you know, political science and history and, and even a bit of sociology, chemistry, uh, physics, that kind of thing, business school, economics, invested in, you know, just people just want to do their research, just want to teach and, and explore the rep, push back the, the darkness uh, just a little bit. Um, but there are some faculty who do this. These are renegade faculty. I cite many of them in my book. Um, uh, people say outrageous things. People say things that if they were to say in person, um, uh, to a person's face would probably get them more than they bargained for, that kind of thing. But that is not really the problem that I address. You said that, well, is there a foreign influence? Yes, there is. And that foreign influence, meaning not another country, but outside the university, um, has been in process of generating a bureaucracy on almost all college campuses within the last 20 years. This is what is new about Brutal Minds. We all know that there's a left-wing camp to the university. Uh, the latest research shows by Samuel Abrams at Sarah Lawrence, Lawrence College shows that there is a six to one liberal to conservative camp tilt imbalance on the college campus. In fact, we've always seen that type of imbalance and we have to deal with that. You know, we've always been able to deal with that. And these people are, by and large, you know, nice people. Um, but there's another entity on the campus and it is growing in power and influence and in numbers. And this is the bureaucracy, specifically what is called student affairs. Now, on the campuses, we have two main departments. There's academic affairs, which is where I am, and there's student affairs. And this is kind of a mysterious entity, and people are kind of left to their own devices to figure out what it is these people do. Well, you know, the average person says, well, don't these guys make dorm room assignments? Don't they kind of advise students on what courses to take? Uh, don't they kind of you know, keep the pizza hot and make sure that the sound system works for karaoke night, that kind of thing. And yes, that's true. Um, but they do an awful lot of other things too, because where do these people come from? They're all trained. 90, 90, 95% of them are trained in schools of education, which is the villain on college campuses, generally speaking. It's the bottom feeder. It's the least respected academic unit on most every college campus. Schools of education, let me say it again, and these schools have been long ago permeated with crypto Maoist ideology as expressed 
by a Brazilian educator by the name of Paulo Freire. There is no greater patron saint in schools of education than Paulo Freire. Have you ever heard of Paulo Freire? No. There you go. Most people haven't. Now, here's why. Uh, because the, the, the people who are pushing this stuff are all self-described, self-described Marxists. You have Henry Giroux, Michael Apple, Ira Shore, Bell Hooks, uh, the, uh, the, the late um, novelist and critical theorist. Uh, they're all self-described Marxists. They make no bones about this, right? Um, uh, but you never heard of these people. These are the ones who inform what goes on in schools of education. Now, they said a long time ago, meaning between, uh, between three, two and three decades ago, look, we can't say that we in the education schools are informed by critical theory, neo-Marxist critical theory, uh, and Marx. We can't say, well, we're providing a Marxist education for, for, for teachers. I think you understand why they can't say that. It's for the same reason that the, the neo-Marxist critical theorists said back in the 30s, 40s, that we can't say Marx. We have to say critical theory. And this is all documented. Um, uh, and I even have the books uh, of the time say, talking to each other. We can't use Marx. We have to utilize something else because Marx is simply politically um, uh, untouchable. It's toxic. And so education schools recognized that they needed a front man to launder this dirty theory, like Al Capone needed a front man to launder dirty cash. You need someone that is you know, benign, anodyne, someone who is unrecognizable. And they selected or chose Paulo Freire, a Brazilian educator who wrote in 1970, published in 1970, a very famous book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed, the third most cited book in the social sciences. Most people haven't heard of it. It's basically a repackaging of Mao Zedong's education theory of the time. Paulo Freire was a great admirer of Lenin, of Stalin, but most especially of Mao Zedong's. Mao Zedong actually, I'm sorry, uh, Paulo Freire actually endorsed the Cultural Revolution, which killed between 1.5 and 2 million people between 1966 and 1976. Uh, he endorsed him and said, quote, Mao has provided us with the most genial solution of the century, the Cultural Revolution. He said the Great Cultural Revolution. Now, Freire said this. He lamented that Lenin had, had, had was struggling with this problem of how to teach the people to be good communists, and Stalin solved the problem by shooting down the peasants. That's Paulo Freire's term. But let but uh, Mao Zedong provides the most genial solution of the century. This is the guy, Paulo Freire, who was by I should tell you by the way unoriginal as can be, became a Marxist in the 1960s. Clearly, uh, was a great admirer of Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. This is the guy who is informing education school theory and pedagogy. They call it critical pedagogy. Uh, and it permeates virtually every education department and every education school. And the problem is this. Well, you know, as long as they stick to their knitting and don't emerge from this kind of Marxist crucible, won't we be okay? Well, no, we're not okay. Because these educationists, these critical pedagogues, have wanted to extend their influence over the entire university, kind of in line with Herbert Marcuse's long march. Uh, so they created graduate programs and attract to attract the very same people we've been talking about as, as students, people who admire this kind of thing. And the graduate programs are in this, student affairs, higher education management, educational leadership, 
And I have downloaded dozens of the literally dozens of the dissertations of these people coming out of education schools. They're vapid. They are not rigorous. They don't really adhere to any notion of what we consider rigor in the social sciences. Some of them do. So on occasion, I come across one that does. These people are being trained not for academia. They're being trained to become bureaucrats, to fill jobs created especially for them in the bureaucracy. What do they do when they get there? Well, it's a lot more than keeping the sound system working for karaoke night. They begin teaching in what is called the co-curriculum. I assume that you've not heard of that either. Most people have not. The co-curriculum is this paracurriculum created alongside the curriculum, taught by fake faculty, uh, fake courses, uh, grounded almost totally in this Marxist ideology, because there's no check on it. There's no academic department that is affiliated with it unless it's the education schools. Right? And even some schools even offer a fake transcript to document the good work that's done in the co-curriculum. Uh, and at this Rutgers University is one, St. John's University is another. Uh, and I talk about all of this in, in Brutal Minds and how these bureaucrats have been increasing their numbers, have been increasing their, their influence. Let me show you how this reproductive cycle works. I mentioned the communist Marxist, I should say, I'm sorry, the Marxist Louis Althusser earlier, how he described a reproductive bureaucracy that reproduces capitalism in our society. It's very similarly, this, this um, uh, Husserian um, bureaucratic mechanism of reproduction now exists on the college campus designed to reproduce this Marxist influence. Here's how it works. I mentioned the education schools who train people to become bureaucrats in the system, uh, who then begin to deploy this Marxist ideology in a brainwashing sessions during orientation, during workshops, some workshops called brave spaces or safe spaces or intergroup dialogues. Uh, well, these people that I've just mentioned are members usually of off-campus professional organizations like the ACPA or the NASPA. Uh, these are kind of a... a innocuous sounding groups. What do these groups do? They train student affairs people in the doctrines. This, these these um, off-campus professional clubs or guilds are rife with the ideology that I've just described. There's no check on it because they are indeed nonprofits and they train people in institutes how to impose what they call the curricular model uh, on college campuses. They have conferences where these folks can come and hear some of the hate, most hate-filled um, people um, uh, in, in academia, people like Brittany Cooper at Rutgers University. Um, now, why is this important? Can we just ignore these off-campus groups? No, we can't. And here's why. The ACPA and NASPA, these ideologically riven off-campus groups, set the standards for the education advanced degrees in the education schools. So now you have a triangle here, what I call the Cerberus, which is the three-headed dog with one body. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's an iron triangle. So you have these off-campus groups establishing the, the, the Marxist uh, decolonization standards for education schools teaching, uh, you know, offering these advanced degrees that then graduate bureaucrats into the bureaucracy, which then run a brainwashing or slash thought reform program, a transformative education program on the college campuses, and then come back around and you see how it works. It's a circle of vice. This is the bureaucratic mechanism that I describe 
in brutal minds. I show people that it exists. I cite around 70%, 75% of the book is uh, quotations from the people who are operating this bureaucratic model. Um, most of the book is, and there's nothing, I will certainly correct anything in the book that is pointed out to me as being factually incorrect or misquoted or uh, you know, a description that somehow is inaccurate, happy to do so. Uh, and this is why the, the book is being suppressed, I think, and that there's very little public acknowledgement of uh, what is being said in Brutal Minds, because, damn it, it's true. When you say suppressed, do you mean like like Amazon issues or big corporation issues or just publicly like media is not covering it or talking about it? I mean, media kind of believes the same and feeds into that same ideology anyway that's going on on campuses. Oh, well, you know, I expected this kind of thing. When I say suppressed, of course, I had to I had to physically go over to the University of Pennsylvania Barnes and Noble bookstore to say, why isn't this book part of, because it's part of the new issues and Barnes and Nobles around the country have uh, that received, ordered it, received it. A lot of them post posted it up front during that initial initial period of six weeks of uh, new publication. And I had to uh, lobby to have the book. Uh, I, I think if you look at the title, it's, uh, it's clear why they might not have wanted to. The dark world of left wing brainwashing in our universities. And Penn is featured prominently in the book. But but I'll be damned. They came through, and they uh, I autographed a number of books. They were it was it was um, placed up front in the bookstore. Uh, but certainly um, there has been a, a, a averted gaze and a, la a lack of a willingness to engage with what the book actually says in the mainstream media, um, in uh, what might otherwise be venues where this type of thing would be discussed: chronicle higher education, inside higher ed, that kind of thing. Um, but I expected that. They do the same thing. Um, there's recent articles trending about it. It was all over the news, but librarians were doing the same thing about hiding certain books um, from individuals that might go mostly with a conservative or right leaning to it. They were either pointing people in the opposite direction of those books or telling them it wasn't available or taking them off the shelves and putting them in the back. There was a bunch of librarians at different libraries that got caught doing that. I'm not surprised at that. Um, I'm not surprised at that at all because we put too much trust in librarians, um, especially where the so-called book banning uh, issue is concerned. Uh, librarians ban books all the time. They do it all the time, we, but they hide behind. No, I won't say they hide behind. They are crouching behind or they, they are resting behind the notion of the library. Um, and the idea that there's somehow these arbiters or gatekeepers of, of the books that you and I can find at, at, at the library. Books are banned all the time by simply not buying them. Uh, librarians select the books that will be purchased within you know, the budgetary means of the library. And um, uh, as such, I think it's, it's um, especially where juvenile libraries are concerned, uh, they don't have carte blanche on this. And I don't think that we should give them carte blanche. And if a librarian is being, is, demonstrated to be making bad, you know, bad judgment decisions in terms of what types of books are available for juveniles. And I'm not referring to political ideas. I'm not referring to catcher, catcher in the rye or to killing a, to kill a mockingbird or things like that. But no one consider putting an old issue of Hustler in there or maybe a complete run of Hustler magazines or, or, or Penthouse or something like that for kids to, to freely access because heaven knows we don't, we don't want to be banning books or magazines or, or information. No one would uh, question that. But and yet we have these other books that are somehow deemed uh, uh, protected from criticism. And somehow we're supposed to not criticize librarians for their choices or their non-choices. 
Uh, and so I have, I, I really have no information about how libraries are treating brutal minds, but um, you are correct in the sense that we live in a world of choice and the choices that are being made and the non-choices that are being made by, by folks who give us access to information uh, are open to question, I think. What would you suggest as a effort to try and change or I mean, besides sounding the alarm on it, but changing the left-wing ideology that's obviously... It feels like it's the whole college campus, at least from people I talk to. I try and tell even some of my guests that are on the left side. I just kind of go, you don't think there's too much left? Not really a balanced equal. There's not really a whole shared opportunity. When one thing kind of overcomes the whole side, it ends up taking and investing the whole thing. So I'm like, if anything, like I'm freedom of speech for everybody. Let everybody voice their opinions, but you need to have that discussion. You can't just only teach one side of things, which even I've been taught one side things on my show. And I kind of go, well, isn't that a little bit more? Because I've actually learned this from somebody else and they kind of hesitant to share or express that because then it kind of takes down their point or whatever their goal is. So I'm curious what you would suggest as a fix or a way that we can kind of reconcile or at least bring an equal balance on universities to some people to be able to explore the information for themselves. Because right now they don't know what they don't know. So if you're only teaching one side of things, you're not going to go and want to sort out for the other stuff. Well, there's two elements to this. One is the fact that these folks believe they have access to the truth. Um, and whenever you have access to the truth or believe that you have access to the truth, uh, it nat and, and everyone around you agrees with you because of the selection process that we have with faculty, because you want to hire people that you are, can be colleagues with, right? And that you agree on a lot of principles. And if you believe that you have that, well, then you're not really motivated. You're, you're kind of motivated by your profession of being a professor to, oh, we're going to show both sides and everything. But uh, if, you know, if if we run out of time, we simply won't look at Adam Smith or Milton Friedman and that, that kind of thing. So I think there's not really a lot of motivation because they believe that people like myself probably, uh, well, we have false consciousness. And we, the only problem with people like me, me, I don't know, people like you, is that we need to be brought along. We need to be brought along uh, to understand the errors of our ways, the intellectual uh, flaccidity of what it is we believe. Um, and that's that's one one problem. The other problem that of fixing this problem is that there's no recognition that it is indeed a problem. Um, you'll find in the pages of Chronicle of Higher Education, article after article talking about political interference by outside organizations like the state legislatures or governors that have, you know, uh, oversight over what goes on in publicly funded universities, um, and all that we in the university should be trusted to oversee ourselves. We're we're you know the best and the brightest, all of that stuff. Um, the main problem here, as I've just described to you, is the bureaucracy, which is growing in power and influence, and is certainly augmented by faculty who happen to agree with this type of of influence. Let me interject here very quickly about what I say, mean when I say brainwashing, because I've used that term and it's in the subtitle of my book. And a lot of people have this expanded you know, notion of what constitutes brainwashing. It runs from a very lay, a lay view of it all the way to what um, psychiatrists or psychologists might MK say. MKUltra, let's talk about it. That kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, well, the idea that you're going to inflict, and by the way, brainwashing appears in DSM-5, uh, the uh, diagnostic statistical manual of mental disorders, the kinds of, of the kinds of uh, casualties that can be inflicted on people who've gone through brainwashing programs. It's basically a thought reform program. And uh, the the quote that informs my book, and it appears in the book as well by Robert J. Lifton, very famous psychi uh, psychiatrist, uh, wrote a classic book on thought reform. 
the quote is this, there is the demand that one confess to crimes that one has not committed, to sinfulness that is artificially induced in the name of a cure that is artificially imposed. And that is basically the core of brainwashing. Who is doing it? Well, student affairs people. The brainwash was created or invented in the 1940s by a fellow here in the States at MIT by the name of Kurt Lewin, and he called it re-education. If you ever wonder where that term came from, it came from Kurt Lewin, and he meant it as a, as a good thing. And his program of unfreezing a belief system, changing the belief system, and refreezing a belief system was meant to be applied to criminals. He could change their belief system by utilizing this three-step encounter group process called re-education. Well, the communist Chinese found this very uh, solitary and developed their own version of it, along with the North Koreans during the 1950s. The idea of attacking a person's sense of self and identity right, in preparation for the way of, uh, of changing that person's belief system, removing it, so to speak, and implanting a new belief system that was more amenable to the political times of, say, communist China, Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward or Cultural Revolution, and then occupying the, the uh, victim with lots of activities so that they would continue to do the work so that they wouldn't backslide into their old way of thinking. This model is used on college campuses right now. I will show you a brainwashing manual. This is called Teaching for Diversity and Social Justice, which incorporates the three-stage model that I just described to you in chapter four. This book has come out in four editions. This it starts in 1997, the latest edition in 19, I'm sorry, 2022. Here's another one right here by Sherry K. Watt. It's called Designing Transformative Multicultural Initiatives. Uh, and in this, Sherry K. Watt inflicts what she calls the uh, privileged identity exploration model in which students' sense of self and identity is attacked, designed to uh, pave the way to a change of belief system. Um, and I can give you a quote, and you can tell me if this is brainwashing or not. They have returned, repurposed the, uh, the terms of unfreezing, changing, and refreezing. Here is what the first stage of we're going to put students at their ease and make them learn to trust us to pave the way for the changing. Um, they say this, use low-risk self-disclosure and interaction in the early stages to establish a norm of self-disclosure at the outset if the environment is perceived as supportive, a person's defenses may be more permeable. So they're on the attack. Here's the first stage, defending, they call it, which is unfreezing. During this phase, students undergo, quote, challenges to their belief system in an environment that is supportive and trustworthy. In other words, they're trying to gain the trust of students, un unwarranted trust, in my opinion, so that then they begin to deconstruct that belief system. That uh, next phase is surrendering. This is their terminology. Students are presented to social justice theory um, and the process is, quote, confusing, disorienting, frightening. Students might feel out of control without known boundaries or familiar ground and may experience strong emotion such as anger, resentment, and a sense of betrayal by those who are supposed to tell them the truth about the social world, end quote. I'm talking about parents here, right? And the final stage, refreezing, is called transforming. Quote, a new set of beliefs becomes home base for interpreting experience and creating meaning. The past is reinterpreted and reconstructed into a new frame of reference, end quote. That's the, brain, that's the brainwash. 
And that quote, what I just quoted you, appears in this book, out in four editions, Teaching for Social Justice, Diversity and Social Justice. It's clear as, as can be. Uh, that Those quotes appear in Brutal Minds. This is what they're doing, they being student affairs professionals and, and uh, uh, social justice educators. Um, and it's, it's clear as a bell. And in Brutal Minds, I say, here's what you parents and here's what you students can do to identify this type of uh, brainwash session, how you can avoid being sucked in to this um, idea that my identity is going to be attacked change, transform, to make it more solitary and acceptable for a group of people who are animated by crypto-Maoist theory, the critical consciousness uh, group of people. I show how to recognize a threat situation. I show how to counteract it. I show how you can defend yourself legally and um, how to, um, uh, to uh, take it to court if necessary. So this is all going on on all campuses right now where there's a substantial student affairs presence filled with people who've been educated in education schools with these advanced degrees. There's a lot we can do to stop it. Are you hopeful? I'm a bit of a misanthrope about the way that the world's going, to be honest with you. I'm hopeful uh, because there are two ways that we can reform. One is the longer term version, which is what we see this, the wheels of political organizations are, are grinding slowly. We find people in the Chronicle of Higher Education saying, oh, there's outside political interference. Interference. Well, there's political interference, interference on the college campus from outside organizations such as these nonprofits that are, have politically dominated the university in certain aspects of what it shows to, to students. We can reform that. It's going to require concerted effort uh, and pressure and maybe the awakening of sleepy boards of trustees um, to exert pressure on college presidents. Um, the second and probably the more relevant to parents uh, with kids in college now, they're paying a pretty penny. And these are you know, parents of kids who come home at, at that first Thanksgiving break. And their students, the students and their kids, they feel they exhibit these this antipathy toward their parents. They're angry. They're they're alienated from the belief system that uh, that their parents uh, have inculcated. Usually a moral upbringing. Usually uh, uh, you know, the traditional enlightenment notion of logic, reason, progress, scientific method. Somehow that's not resonating with them uh, because they have been exposed to this very intoxicating uh, uh, ideology that tells them that they are now privy to this hidden knowledge. It's a, it's a, it's a recruitment um, program that is almost identical with what cults use, like um, the Unification Church, or what we call, yeah. call Moonies. Uh, you know, Richard Delgado is a name that is forever associated with critical theory. But in his earlier incarnation in the 70s as a lawyer investigating free speech issues, he investigated the Unification Church, and he said that the Unification Church recruits their, their people according to a certain profile, and they, dis, they, uh, you know, they uh, disaggregate the, the people who are most susceptible to the message. They call these the sheep, and they over here, they see people who are streetwise, cocking an eyebrow, suspicious, skeptical. They call these goats, and they take the sheep and move them into a longer-term, say, weekend program, where the goats... Are, move, are given a perfunctory, quick program, put on a bus, sent back to town. And this way, you get rid of the naysayers, and you have a more malleable, receptive audience by doing this type of discrimination. I've been the victim. I won't say victim because I don't feel like a victim. Of, I've been a, a, and the object of this kind of discrimination when I was going to attend a, an on-campus diversity uh, a seminar. 
And I kind of sent some email questions to where, you know, what about this? What about that? What about this? And then the facilitator said, sent a mail back, said, oh, well, you sound like you're probably not ready for this type of training. So it might be better if later on. So in other words, I'm a goat, right? And I'm being segregated out. Whereas perhaps the, the sheep who are more susceptible to this message, less skeptical, like myself, um, as I'm skeptical, uh, we're admitted into the process, which makes for a kind of, uh, you know, this is why you can find this type of brainwashing going on. Uh, a, I should tell you, a uh, environment, a fake trust is created. And here's one of the, here's one of the telltale markers. When you get a facilitator, not a faculty member, but a facilitator in a workshop, like a brave space or a safe space or a dial, difficult dialogue or a courageous conversation, and they begin to say, well, we want your trust. We want to, to enhance self-disclosure, tell stuff about yourself, about your parents, about your life, about your friends. And I'm going to model that. Here's something about myself. Now, what about you? We want you to trust the people here, and I'm going to model trust. Well, that's crap, okay? And there's no other word for it. I tell people, whenever you hear that or you're put in a situation like this, the best thing is you either leave or you know, don't say a word because these are the people who can't be trusted, the folks who are most soliciting your trust. When you don't even know these people. You don't know who these people are to your right and left. You don't know who this facilitator is, and there's no reason, no reason at all to trust them. But you'll find this type of pressure it's called love bombing. I'll give you the term. It's called love bombing, and it's developed by the Unification Church, and it's adopted by college campuses by the folks who administer this student affairs co-curriculum. Love bombing means I'm going to give you, Robbie, unconditional acceptance. Oh, your, your jokes always land. You're, you're funny, the funniest guy we've ever met. Your clothing, oh, it's so stylish. Your singing voice is amazing. And everything you say and do is just so wonderful. And you come out of it, my gosh. And this is typical of the... Uh, person put through the love bombing. Flattery works, you know? This is kind of a hyper flattery. You know, they go, oh my gosh, I've never felt so accepted in my life, such warmth even in my own family. My gosh, these people are, are, are wonderful. And it's this type of love bombing that students experience in uh, an orientation when it's run by by the thought reformers. So that in a nutshell is what we can do about it. We can act as individual students and faculty to counteract it where it's happening. You know, customer facing is what we might call it. Brainwasher facing, we can put a stop to it and do it on an individual basis. I just got one more question for you because I know we're running out of time. But these thought reformers, do you think that a lot of these people don't know that they're brainwashed themselves that are trying to condition these people into the same ideology thinking that they have? I feel like it's some, like I said, the one-sided information thing can be a very big convincer for a lot of people, especially when you don't know that there is another side to it. I mean, if you are coming out of college and thinking about all these inequalities and things that are going on and things that you're taught in the education system. And some I agree with, and some, I don't think you should be fighting your fellow citizens about. I think you should be getting real change going on in establishment through a proper passive way. But if you don't know that there's another side to it and you think you're getting the whole picture or you just got the real picture, then you're believing that. And it makes it a hell of a lot more easier to try and get people on board with you because you feel like you're revealing to them the facts. I don't think everyone's trying to condition like we're going to do this long process of brainwashing everybody. I think some people in the beginning, maybe, but now at this point, I feel like everyone thinks like, Hey, you don't like when I talk about like a really big government historical thing, COINTELPRO. Many of my younger cousins who are just coming out of high school, can you believe they did this to the Black Panther Party? I was like, hang on. Did you read the full document on it? 
And they're like, what's the full document? I'm like, they also invaded the KKK. They invaded any radical group that they thought is a problem. So it's not just a race issue. It's a power issue. And then the conversation starts to shift from an inequality aspect to more like there's like elites. That's fine. But I'm looking at it like, hey, you got to read the full thing. You can't just look at this like they're specifically targeting individuals. I do believe some of that's out there, but I think that's that that COINTELPRO example is really important because a lot of people only think about it invading the Black Panther Party. They always talk about it like that. Now, I'm not right or left, but I go read the full thing. It's on the FBI website. It's not like they're hiding it, but it shows you they invaded multiple different groups that are opposite of each other. But it was all about predicting a problem that would have been something in their view that would mess with their position of power that's not conspiracy that's not left-wing that's not right-wing it's just looking at the facts of the matter but other people don't believe that there's a side like that they hear that it's only conditioning towards black panther party or it's all this and i'm like that's never the full picture there's always more to it well you ask a very good question and the idea is that do these people actually know that they've that they're brainwashed and of course you're going to ask someone who's been brainwashed are you, are you feel brainwashed no 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 i simply have access to a, a higher a higher degree of knowledge because of my critical consciousness. And if you, this is typical, a typical response of people who have been, have gone through, say, the Unification Church or Synanon or any of People's Temple, uh, when they believe that they indeed have access to a to a, a higher degree of consciousness, this is, you know, it, it's very cult-like to have this kind of, oh, I, I, I have critical consciousness now. And you have false consciousness. Now think how cult-like that sounds. Even the terminology, the slogans, the Unification Church uses as their slogan, peace and unity, knowing full well that there's no anti-peace, anti-unity group of people out there. But, oh, well, who could be against peace and unity? Uh, one of the cult-like mantras on the college campuses today is, oh, diversity and inclusion. You know, you could tack on belonging. Now, well, who's against diversity and inclusion and belonging? I mean, there's, there is no lobby out there. Uh, but this allows a penetration into the consciousness, into the uh, inner workings of someone's um, uh, views on the, on the issues. And usually these terms like diversity, inclusion, belonging, they're not defined or they're defined in such a way that is deceptive, you know, in the traditional vernacular of the university, which the Enlightenment University has always been welcoming to diverse opinions. We talked about this earlier, whereas you can you know, have these various uh, ideas contending and, and facing criticism. The inter interesting difference is that diversity, equity, and inclusion, as it is now propounded, is insulated from criticism. It's insulated from questioning. It, it is. You cannot question uh, because this is so morally correct and based in a Manichaean uh, good and evil binary that uh, if you are asking questions, you're on the wrong side of that binary. So these people, these people being the ones who we're talking about doing the brainwashing, they are committed. There's no doubt about it. They present a clear and present danger to the average person, the, the, the normal person who simply wants to learn what there is to know. Um, and, and do so in a manner that is free and open, which has traditionally been the, the university, not one that is cramped and ideological and where you have to fear what you're saying, no matter how nondescript it might be. This is a, a generational thing, I think. I think what we're seeing now is a a, a generation. It's not the generation's fault. Uh, you know, we, had, we had Generation X and then the millennials and now this is Generation Z. This is, I'm seeing, detecting a very fragile uh, a very fragile uh, uh, say ethos 
that is informing what we're doing now and what I'm hearing and seeing on the classroom in terms of the public discourse, the notion of, oh, self-care, the notion of mindfulness, the notion of safety, the notion of a safe space, the notion of a trigger warning, where there's a this recognition or acceptance that there's a, the, the, there's a, super, uh, a super fragility attached to, to people. And this is in no way, uh, you know, preparing students for the world of work, preparing students for the world of life, where you're going to rub elbows with all kinds of people that don't agree with you. And believe me, those people are not going to be censured. They're not going to be uh, disciplined because they're the normal way of life. They're uh, dislikable people uh, you're going to run into all the time. Um, and, and so I think that the people who have been brainwashed, who are actually running these programs, they are firmly committed to their program. And that program is extremely unfriendly to the university in its traditional role of you know, logic, reason, progress, scientific, um, scientific method, um, uh, the human condition, uh, humanism. They are unfriendly to that conception of the university, and they want it to they want to transform it into something else. I can interject here. One of the goals of this off-campus group called the ACPA, their motto is boldly transforming higher education. Think about that for a second. Who are these people and to, to be boldly transforming higher education? Now, I, I presented this to one of my colleagues, had a nice, interesting conversation. He's not necessarily in agreement with me on this, but I said that their motto is boldly transforming higher education. And he said, well, that's very interesting, but that could mean anything. I could, that could mean anything. It could mean you know, just these mantras and slogans. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I would agree with you if there was nothing else. But in their literature and in their conferences and in their, their books, they say exactly what they mean with respect to boldly transforming higher education. And they want to move from the traditional notion that allows our conversation we're having right now to something else where, that, where there will be um, mind guards who will determine what is academic freedom and what is not. Uh, and he said, well, no, that's very interesting. <laughs> that's my, that's the response. Oh, that's very interesting. And it's interesting indeed that there is a group of people who are trying to truncate our ability to research on the college campus. They want to run our syllabi through our the curriculum, our classroom, uh, who, uh, who we hire through a, a kind of version of the Mark McCarthyite uh, House and American Activities Committee. Senate committee exploring these types of issues. They're setting these types of boards up right now on the college campuses. I'll refer, I'll give you an example. The book, It's Not Free Speech by Michael Berube and Jennifer Ruth. These one's a professor at Penn State, the other's a professor at Portland State. It's Not Free Speech. In this book, it's this year, by the way, in this book, they advocate for committees to be set up and they call these academic freedom committees. When it's Orwellian, it's not an academic freedom committee, it's an academic restriction committee, and it's going to be staffed by some faculty, but by DEI bureaucrats, people who are educated in these types of uh, fake programs coming out of student affairs, coming out of higher education management. And these are the people who will have this imprimatur over faculty, and uh, if they have their way, this is what's being advocated. Um, and, and so and they think there's nothing wrong with this. And because they're articulating and arguing from a different position, a position that wants to transform the arena in which we are having this discussion into an arena where they can control the discussion 
That's why we have so little progress. This is why we can't really have that civil discussion that uh, many people wish that we that we could that we could have. So I said I'm a, a bit of a misanthrope, I'm very pessimistic about changing things. But I'm glad people like yourself are out there at least speaking with it. I mean, you're having a good discourse about it. I don't see. Do you have much confrontation from other people when you try and talk about these certain subjects? Besides, like maybe little discrepancies between you know, academics or anything like that, but people are pretty open to listen. I mean, you lay out things in a pretty clear way. Well, well, no, I, I, I'm avoided to be quite frank with you. Uh, people who, uh, people who believe in this sort of thing, who believe in this truth that they're expounding don't really have even friends that used to be, um, well, used to be friends. Uh, and I'm, I'm very, no, I'm not part of that discussion. I'm not part of their conversation of confirmation. I would say it's, it's the idea that they want to have these viewpoints validated. And I'm very critical of the DEI people, very critical of this ideological uh, position that they're taking. That is you know, part of which is what I just described to you about establishing these these committees. And uh, I've had people stalking me um, uh, electronically um, about this rather than rather than having that type of discussion. But I, what I will tell you, Robbie, is that there's no one, not one person is able to discredit or deny or to show uh, the lie in my book. Not one person will engage the ideas. It's not a polemical book for the most part. It simply lays out the A, B, C, all the way to Z, what's happening right now. Uh, and that conversation about what is happening right now uh, is not going to if they have their way about it, it will never happen. Well, Mr. Ridgely, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? If you have any social handles, websites, um, any place where people can find your book links, and I'll make sure I link them in the description below as well, too. Well, certainly with with Amazon, and uh, it, it's it's and the book is out in three different formats, which is uh, your hard copy and Kindle, and of course a seven and a half hour audio book where you get to hear me speak for seven and a half hours if you can stand that. I, I love to talk. My wife will tell you that. Uh, the other, you can go Barnes and Noble um, and and get a copy of it. Um, you can also go to my website, brutalminds.com. That's easy to remember, where you can order the book and you can also see some of the supporting writings and citations that uh, that undergird undergird the, the book, Brutal Minds. So brutalminds.com. I'll make sure I link those in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, and thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Stay tuned for.